Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. This is Radio Lab. I'm Lulu Miller. Today we're romping through some of the strangest places in outer space black holes, multiverses, and more. We've got two conversations that will stretch and spin your understanding of the starry soup in which we swim. Our first one comes to us from senior correspondent Molly Webster. She is in conversation with the astrophysicist Priyamvada Natarajan. Here we go. Uh, I am Priyamvada Natarajan, and I'm an astrophysicist. So maybe you could just start by telling me when we started thinking about black holes. The term black hole actually comes from an infamous prison in Calcutta. No way. Yeah. So on 20th June 1756, like the ruler of Bengal then, his name was Sirajuddaula, he captured Calcutta back from the East India Company. And so he had all the troops, right? And he imprisoned them overnight in this tiny room a prison where supposedly 146 of them went in, oh my gosh. cramped in this hum- hot, humid uh, place with no water, and that only 23 survived. I mean, I don't know whether that number is actually oh accurate, gosh. but the thing is a large number of them actually passed away. So that was called, you know, it was the point of no return. So it was called the Black Hole of Calcutta. And this predates our scientific understanding of black holes. Because I... By several hundred years. Yeah, because I had heard that we started using the term black hole scientifically like in the 1960s, but you're saying even before that, it was around. Yes. So in 1887, there was a fire in Opera Comique building in Paris, and the New York Times referred to it as, you know, an immense black hole because everything was obliterated and nothing could be retrieved from that fire. Everything was destroyed. And a New York Times reporter, he mentions it as an immense black hole. Mm. You know, Edgar Allan Poe mentions the black hole of Calcutta when he writes one of his scary stories called The Premature Burial. So, you know, this comes again and again in popular culture well before the scientific idea of a black hole and its properties were established. It's interesting that like humans felt the concept of a black hole. Yeah, it's the imagination, right? It's the power Mm -hmm. of our imaginations, right? That our senses, I mean, you know, we view the world visually and that fails when you don't have light. So we are sort of lost. And so I think there's fear that we associate with darkness, right? It almost makes me wonder when we first started thinking about black holes in a scientific sense, if there was like a fear of them, like if that that's the phrase that right. we put on them. Right. I think fear and repulsion, and that's where the next Indian connection comes in, right? So okay. the person who really proposed astrophysical concept of a black hole as the end of, you know, the corpses that massive stars in the universe, leave behind, was Subramaniam Chandrasekhar. So he was this brilliant young man who came to England, to Cambridge, to do his PhD. And on his voyage, he actually figured this out. You know, he married the then 
current understanding of stellar physics with the newly emerging quantum mechanics. And he was mm. able to figure out that the end states of stars, stars, you know, live out their lives, they burn all the fuel, um, uh, the hydrogen and the helium in their uh, cores. And then they eventually, when they exhaust their fuel, they have they end their life. And that the way in which they end their life depends on the birth mass of the star, the mass that it was born with. And he figured out that stars that were born with masses, maybe eight to 10 times the mass of our sun, will have a weird fate, like gravity would completely take over at the very end, and they would collapse into this very, very dense object, which would be a black hole. And stars that were born with lower masses would end up and uh, their lives as neutron stars. And those mm. are just very dense. They're sort of the dense cousins, but they're not as enigmatic in their properties as black holes. And he presented this at a Royal Society meeting. And Sir Arthur Eddington, who was one of the most distinguished uh, astrophysicists of his time in the world, Eddington speaks right after him and completely <sighs> decimates him. Oh. And, you know, says, you know, his physics is wrong, his calculations are wrong. You know, Chandra is stunned at this public humiliation. Nobody else really stands up for him because of who oh. Arthur Eddington is. You know, and it took a long time for the scientific community to accept this idea. The reason Eddington vehemently opposed it was he had a competing theory of stellar death. And of course, you know, it is not lost on anyone that this was 1935. Remember, India was still... Uh, a British colony, mm -hmm. and Chandra was a British subject. So when did then Chandra's ideas start to become accepted? Eventually, you know, the two things, the two odd uh, things that happened that really got the idea of black holes uh, accepted, as it were, is, you know, during World War II, when they were doing the bomb calculations... <gasps> It's really strange, right? They I know, realized I, like, I did not expect you to go to work, <laughs> there, work right. but I am ready. Yeah, so yeah. the you know the explosion of the star and the explosion of a bomb is the same equations. Really? Yep. And they realized that aha, so now there wow. was, you know, you could see how this gravity could just take over and you could form this very, very compact kind of singular object. So that so there was this one line of evidence that showed, oh, this kind of thing could happen in the universe, right? The other thing, of course, with as with all science, is sort of empirical discovery, right? It was the discovery by Jocelyn Bell uh, of pulsars, these pulsating neutron stars. So, you know, so now that neutron stars were detected, you know, it kind of ratifies that there should be, why not? Why you would then maybe have... our other guesses were also right. Exactly. <laughs> and there were calculations, right? Yeah. I mean, there were sort of uh, serious computations. So I think that then added heft. And then later, you know, one definitive uh, way, empirical way to know and detect the presence of a black hole is the detection of X-rays from the gas that is being pulled around, for example, a supermassive black hole like the one at the center of the Milky Way. You know, um, the way you would see it and the way we have seen it, you know, that like image that you've seen, the donut image and the glowing, the orange stuff that you see is the gas right around the black hole that is being pulled in by the force of gravity and it's being sped up and heated up and it starts to glow. That's what we are seeing there, right? 
So if you look at the Milky Way, the mass of the black hole at the center of the Milky Way is 4 million times the mass of the sun. And the mass of our galaxy, of the stars in our galaxy and dark matter in our galaxy is 10 to the 12 times the mass of the sun. So the black hole is really tiny, right? It's tiny, wow. tiny. So it was then believed that because they are so tiny in terms of the overall mass budget of a galaxy, even if they're sitting at the center of every galaxy, which, by the way, was discovered when I was in graduate school in 1998, mm -hmm. nearly every galaxy in the nearby universe appears to harbor a black hole. And what is, like, how many galaxies are in the nearby universe? Well, it depends on what you mean by nearby, <laughs> but, you know, one could easily say know. billions, you know, one could easily say billions. So then billions of black holes. Yep. Just just at the center. Just just if we're talking about centered black holes, billions. Right. And then, uh, yeah, they're littered everywhere. So this is supermassive black holes in the centers, right? So mm -hmm. recent theoretical work from my research group has shown that there's actually, in the Milky Way, for example, there are probably another 12 supermassive black holes that are littered, that are wandering around, that are not oh at the gosh. center, that were kicked out of the center, right, over time. I don't understand that. How... <laughs> How do black holes float? A floating black hole to me is as if I was on a mountain and a rock started rolling down. And it was like, I'm like, oh, my God, this rock is going to hit me like an avalanche. This rock's going to hit me and annihilate me. Does not a floating black hole in a galaxy, isn't it the avalanche of the galaxy? Well, not quite. So galaxies assemble in our universe the way structure forms. You form the smallest galaxies, and they smash into each other. They merge uh -huh. into each other, and then they make bigger galaxies. Okay, so this uh -huh. is how things hierarchically assemble. <laughs> so if you imagine the two galaxies that actually little galaxies that smashed into each other were already seeded with a black hole, right? So the stars merge upon collision. The dark matter kind of rearranges itself because the dark matter, we believe, is made up of stuff that doesn't actually collide. It's collision-less, right? It's just held by gravity. And mm -hmm. the black holes have to merge. Or one of them will kick the other one out, depending on if these masses were actually not equal and they were really disparate, right? So you could kick out a black hole. I, I think of black holes as rooted to a spot and uh, somehow they really change for me when they're floating so you know black holes are a place that has a place in the universe a place in which they warp the space-time around them so extremely right that mm -hmm. and they have intense gravity but you know it's useful conceptually to also think of them as objects as, you know, very compact, dense things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And if you think of it that way, then, you know, you can kind of understand how, so, you know, black holes are actually spinning too, right? So you can mm -hmm. imagine they kind of spin. <laughs> it's they, it's like they the twist. most chaotic cartoon character exactly. I've ever heard. Yeah, <laughs> They could spin and twist up space-time around themselves, right? So <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. they, it's useful to think of, you know, to kind of move between thinking of uh, black holes as places and as object. As it's moving, is it reshaping the galaxy and forcing a different type of evolution with the stars that it comes near? So depending on whether this wandering black hole, like the details of how the collision happened, it could drag some stars with it. 
And it could have its own little bevy of, you know, little uh, trail of stars that it's kind of held on to. And it doesn't move that fast. I mean, it's not going to be moving at speeds of light or anything because, you know, galaxies okay. themselves are kind of tumbling at velocities that are... 200-ish kilometers per second or so. So these things are not going to be whizzing around anywhere near the speed of light or anything like that. Mm. We don't yet have definitive evidence for the detection of a fully wandering population. Do we know if they'll ever settle somewhere? Like, I'm almost thinking of, like, a migrant people's... Uh, or or a cult. <laughs> or like. You can think of it as, you know, the attraction of gravity, something like a bowl, and this guy will be sort of wandering black hole, unless it's been kicked out with a huge speed, in which case it would exit the galaxy and would be completely free-floating, right? So that's possible, too. But, you know, black holes eventually, right, they will settle to the center. They'll be pulled in by the gravity because the biggest one will be in the center. But the black hole, even at the center of our own galaxy, is not sitting still, right? It kind of wobbles a little bit here and there. It's a very small wobble, but it does. My so, gosh, I wonder if we ever feel the wobble. <laughs> but, you know, well, we don't feel the Earth rotating, do we? So forget <laughs> it, Molly. We're not going to feel the wobble. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just thinking Chandra was out in that boat. He, he did a bunch of math. He came up with black holes. Maybe he felt the wobble. <laughs> right. But, you know, when you think that you have equations in mathematics that can really describe the natural world, I mean, surprisingly well, right? I mean, that is still a kind of a miracle. Like why math as a language works so well in describing the phenomena we see in nature, Right. And, and I think part of, you know, tied in with all of that is like that, you know, the so-called information paradox, which is no longer a paradox. Um, the fact that, you know, what really happens when um, light, matter, anything crosses this sort of, you know, sort of the sacred boundary of a black hole called the event horizon, a point of no return. Mm -hmm. Right. And and I think that's where I can now bring up that Hawking story that you... Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I'll just jump in here to say that before the interview, I told Priya I wanted to talk to her about Stephen Hawking and this idea that he came up with that's now called Hawking radiation, but it has to do with what happens to stuff after it falls into a black hole. So, you know... Um, Hawking, I knew him in Cambridge, and I've had the real privilege of talking to him about my thesis work, which some of which was on black holes and some of which was on dark matter. And I think one of the analogies that he had about to think about you know, information and whether you can retrieve it or not, right, was that imagine you had an Encyclopedia Britannica. So you have the full volume in front of your hands. You have it in your hand. You're looking up New Haven, Connecticut, you know, all the details of population, geography, etc. Now you put the encyclopedia in a glass, in a box, okay, in a box, and you burn it. And the box is really tight. Nothing leaves the box, right? So all the remains of the encyclopedia, all the, the ash, the carbonated ash is sitting inside that box. Nothing's left that box, right? Mm -hmm. So at some level, there is no information that has been lost as such, right? It's still there. It's just that, you know, it's no longer written in a language in English that we understand. And we also don't know how to retrieve that information from char, right? From char charcoal. Like, we just don't know mm -hmm. how to... 
extricate that information. So the, that's the situation that, you know, the information is most likely not lost. It's just that we do not yet know how it is stored, like how it mutates, like once it crossed the event horizon, how is it how does it transmute? What does it transmute into? In this analogy, it transmutes into like ash, right? Mm-hmm. And But we, A, don't know how and what it transmutes to, and we don't know how to recover the information from whatever it has mm-hmm. transmuted to. And then how does it, sort of his idea of hawking radiation like tie into the metaphorical ash? Oh, yeah. So the the metaphor, so Hawking radiation, basically black holes should be radiating energy off because, you know, vacuum is not completely empty. So you have particles and antiparticles that are whizzing around. And mm-hmm. occasionally around a black hole, you could have an antiparticle that goes, crosses the event horizon, mm-hmm. but its particle equivalent is on the other side, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, you have this kind of um, process by which you have energy coming, supposedly coming out of the black hole, right? So there's energy loss, there's a temperature, and there's therefore evaporation. You can associate a temperature with a black hole, you can associate an area with the black hole, and you can associate an entropy with the black hole. And so therefore, an object that has entropy and has a temperature will evaporate. Okay, but it takes a long time for evaporation. So none of the black holes that we are seeing and we are measuring in the universe, stellar mass black holes or supermass, they are not going to evaporate anytime soon. Okay, so those are pretty stable. But any little guys that formed, you know, primordial black holes that formed right after the Big Bang, if they were less than 10 to the 15 grams, they would have evaporated away by today. Hmm. This idea that there's a particle that could escape out of a black hole, that there was something inside the black hole that knows about the inside of the black hole and then it gets out to the universe. I always thought that image was a really beautiful, um, almost like human metaphor, uh, because I thought, oh, you know, it's like we're all little black holes (laughs) just (laughs) bumbling around and like we're giving off some hints of like what's happening inside of us and who we are and like what we've come across. And sometimes Mm. that's verbally and sometimes it's non-verbally. And now you're saying to really add to the poetry, if you give off enough, you disappear. (laughs) (laughs) No, but also we do, we do disappear, you know, in uh, the wink of an eye, right? In terms of the age, I mean, our lifespans are like tiny compared to any other cosmic timescale, right? Um, so we're, yeah. we're like, it's a blink of an eye. We are here and we're gone. It really says something about, you know, it captures the complexity of human beings, right? And the fact that you never really know everything that's there. <laughs> you could never really know somebody completely, right? That was Priyambara Natarajan, an astrophysicist at Yale. Thanks, Priya. If you'd like to dig into her work, check out her book, Mapping the Heavens, the radical scientific ideas that reveal the cosmos. And stick around, because next up, we're surfing through the multiverses. You knew it was time. We got to do it. Stay tuned. Radiolab, Lulu, we are journeying through space this hour. And up next, we have a conversation with Robert Krolwich, longtime host of Radiolab, and theoretical physicist Brian Green. They spoke together as part of the 92nd Streetwise longstanding lecture series. Here we go. The, the man you are about to meet 
is he's a professor at Columbia University of Mathematics. He's also a professor of physics at Columbia University. He's also the director of the Institute for Strings, Cosmology, and Astroparticle Physics at Columbia University. He's also a best-selling author. He's also done work in what's called mirror symmetry, which means I'm not sure what exactly. Uh, it involves, however, relating two different Kalabi-Yau manifolds, relating the conifold to one of the orbifolds, which I'm sure you know all about. Uh, he's a Rhodes Scholar. He's the author of The Elegant Universe. So basically, he's not a dumb person, not at all. But <clears throat> he does, however, believe the most peculiar things. So if you ask him, and I will, he believes that if you travel from this room, from this auditorium on 92nd Street and Lexington Avenue, in pretty much any direction at all, but if you have to go really, really, really far, light years upon light years upon light years out, you will, if you travel far enough, eventually find a galaxy but that looks, and I mean exactly like our Milky Way. And in that galaxy, you will find a planet that is an absolute copy, a dead ringer for our planet Earth. And on that planet, you will find a city that is uncannily down to the hairs on the city rats, exactly like this city, New York City. And in that city, there will be another 92nd Street YWYMHA with a building that has another auditorium in it that is exactly like this auditorium here. And if you think that's an unlikely coincidence, I'm just getting started because I think Brian Green will also tell you there is another professor who also teaches both mathematics and physics at a school that just happens to also be called Columbia University, who's also the director for Institute for Strings, Cosmology, and Astroparticle Physics, who also just happens to be named Brian Green with an E on the end, like this one, the one out here. And in these two rooms, these two identical professors with their identical past are going to be talking to, yes, an identical audience watching, which is an exact copy of every one of you sitting here in this room right now with all your histories and all your memories, Brian Green believes there's not only one doppelganger room with a doppelganger Brian Green and a doppelganger audience. He believes there are countless doubles of us in every direction out there in the great beyond. And what's more, there are rooms exactly like this one with just you missing or just me missing or the color of my shirt slightly different. In other words, in a big enough cosmos, in an infinite cosmos, Brian Green thinks that anything you could imagine, almost anything that can be out there will be out there really out there. To which I say, oh, come on. <laughs> Does he really believe this? And if so, why? So let's ask him, let's welcome the local homegrown version of a man I like to call Brian Green. Okay. So far so good? Did I get it right? Uh, more or less. Okay. Uh, there's an assumption you left out, but we can get to that. Okay. Well, I want to talk about two words, infinite and universe. Let's do infinite first. We're going to start infinite by discussing what you have in a manuscript you're working on now. You've described it as the Imelgo, Imelda Marcos wardrobe problem. So we, 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 we have a woman here who does not like see, being seen in the same outfit twice. So tell us what, how she solved it. Um, the, the issue that you're referring to is the following. If you have a finite number of distinct ways, in this particular case, of dressing. Right. And you have, say, an infinite number of days and evenings on which you have to step out, then it's pretty clear that you're going to have to repeat an outfit once, twice, in fact, innumerable times, because you only, say, had 10 different outfits, or in the case of Imelda, the example there, 
I forget how many. Five hundred dresses and one thousand pairs of designer shoes. Right there, you go. So you can envision the number of distinct combinations of dresses and shoes. Very easy to figure it out. Just five hundred times a thousand. And then if there are more than that many days, then that individual, that Imelda, is going to have to repeat. Is right. going to have to repeat a given outfit if there's say infinitely many days and only finite number of outfits. Right. Simple idea. All right. <laughs> So now let's just use that logic and apply it uh, to just a different kind of system. Imagine a cosmos which has infinite space. Now, the key thing here, I think, is that um, the stuff in the cosmos, you believe, has some kind of finite set of rules. So let's take uh, her, this woman in the... In the uh, what are you? Are you in the pinkish kind of... Yeah. Red. Okay. So <clears throat> she is a compilation of atoms which follows certain rules. Her memories, or I assume you think also atoms? I do. Not everybody agrees that every aspect of your personality and your conscious being is reducible to a configuration of the atoms that make up your brain, but I certainly believe that. And that's going Dreams, to be, memories. That's right. There's nothing else. All you mm-hmm. are is a bag of particles acting out the laws of physics. That to me is pretty clear. However wow. distasteful it Say may. you. <laughs> the kiss of God we just don't include in this arrangement. You can if you'd like. I just don't see any particular need for it. So for this discussion... <laughs> uh, so if she is just a large number of atoms in a particular array, but let's say she can... Um, we can travel infinitely and look at all of... And we're talking here, what, I guess about particles or about forces or about you can reduce everything basically to particles that's a that's a fine way of phrasing the whole conversation and the idea that you're getting at is indeed the fact that if the universe is infinitely big then the number of distinct configurations of particles actually is finite and if the universe is infinitely big then just as your coin tosses have to repeat the configurations of the particles will have to repeat so you go sufficiently far out there, and the configuration of particles will repeat and will indeed make a configuration of particles that looks just like this room. Looks on the outside or, or is. So, so she had a dream last night about a black cat walking on a, on a fire escape. She is also deeply in love with the man next to her, and they share an enormous number of, of, of experiences together. So we have a lot of atoms there doing very different things, if indeed they're doing these things at all. You say that that combination, the intimate inside and outside combination, will be found elsewhere again and again and again. Yes, I'm actually saying both. I'm saying that the outside will be found with a distinct inside, many places out there, but the outside with the same inside will also be found out there because, again, it's just another configuration of the particles. And since there are only a finite number of distinct possibilities, it's a huge finite number. It's a gargantuan finite number, but it's a finite number. And if you go sufficiently far out, there's just so many distinct configurations that there can be if they're finitely many. So if you go sufficiently far out, you have to repeat. But won't you run into a quadrillion people almost like her. Oh, her absolutely. Color, it's but... much easier to reproduce this this woman in the first row with one particle in a different place or two particles in different Those are much easier because there's less constraint. If you want to reproduce this individual 
completely. Every single particle has to be in the right place. That just means you have to go a little further. Now you, I know we're speaking here, and, and this, is, this makes perfectly logical sense. It just makes absolutely no practical sense, obviously. But I'm also wondering whether it makes sense to you as a person. Do you literally think that there are two people exactly like us with our dreams, our thoughts, and da 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 in some other stage right now, or whatever you would call now, over and over again right now, all over the universe, or do you just say that? Well, there's a key element that we have been assuming, and we've been assuming that the universe is infinitely big. And we don't know that the universe is infinitely big. It could be that you go on for some distance, and you walk and you walk, and you wind up coming back from that direction, sort of like the surface of the Earth. It has a certain size. It's not infinitely big. It doesn't have an edge. You can't fall off, but nevertheless, when you keep on going, you return to your starting point. It could be that the universe has that kind of a shape. Mm -hmm. The data seems not to support that at all at the moment. The best astronomical data does not support that. It supports a universe that is flat as opposed to curved. And if that's the case, it's still possible that the universe could be sort of like the surface of the Earth in the sense that it might be like the surface of a a video game screen. If anybody who plays Pac-Man or any of the other videos, you know that when Miss Pac-Man falls off the right side of the screen, you know, she doesn't disappear, she comes back on the left side of the screen. <laughs> yeah. That's another possible shape for the universe. It has a name, it's called a torus, and our universe might have that particular shape. Again, it's a finite shape, but you can't fall off. We don't believe you can fall out of the universe, so that would be a way to have a finite universe where you don't fall off. However, the other possibility is simply that it goes on forever. And we don't know which is right. The simplest one mathematically is that it simply goes on forever. And if that's the shape of the universe, then yes, I fully believe that we are out there in some notion of now having this conversation not once, not twice, infinitely many times. Well, aside from the deep creepiness, well, let's talk about the creepiness of that. <laughs> I mean, there is an... Uh, uh, a notion that we all have that we are unique individuals and that there is a real version of us. In my case, you're looking at him. So You just said that a million billion times <laughs> over in the other universes. Uh, well, so where does that leave you? Do you just feel like personal you know, identity you're copy is very number odd. 418? Or? Personal identity in this context is very, very strange. There's literally no difference between me and the other guy out there. And that's okay with me. I don't really have a problem with that, but I do agree that it challenges your sense of what your personal identity is all about. You are the collection of your memories, which are ultimately just a collection of impressions in your brain, just a collection of particle configurations. And if that other individual has the same brain configuration because the particles are in identical state as they are in my head, that person is as much me as I am me. So doesn't that automatically make you want to quickly run off the stage, hide under a pillow, do something that the other guy could never find out, and then be different? Well, I know that he'll have exactly the same thoughts. <laughs> uh, it, it won't help me very much. But That's really creepy, to be chased around by the, by the, 
by the infinite number of doppelgangers, so that what you, everything you will to do, they also will to do simultaneously. And there are infinitely others that will to do something slightly different. So there's just a richness to the world, but its no. complexion is somewhat different than what you had in mind. I think most of us have in mind that if the universe is infinitely big, you keep on going, you'd see new landscapes. Keep on going, you'd see new stuff, new stuff, new stuff. That's our picture of what reality is in that kind of a universe, our universe. And I'm saying that the laws of physics don't support that notion. The laws of physics support, yes, it's a rich world out there, but the distinct landscapes, the distinct environments, the distinct configurations that you can see are limited. What about how far away is the nearest one to me? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> you can actually calculate that. And as you might imagine, it's a pretty big number because... I'll give you a number from a guy named Mark Tegmark at MIT. I have no idea what this means. What is 10 to the power 10 to the 29th meters? Uh, that's a big number. <laughs> and, um, you know, you, you know what it means to it's take... It's not like, hi! It's not, not a... Uh, well, just, just to quickly say what that means, I think you're familiar you know, with what 10 to the 2 means. It's 100, just a 1 with two zeros following it. In this particular case, you take 10 to the 29. That's a big number, 1 with... 29, 29 zeros zero. after it, and then you take 10 to that number, oh. which is that many zeros following, 10 to the 29 zeros following the one, and it's so big that we don't have a name for, I mean, call it the crawl witch, whatever, I mean, it's, it's a huge number, and it just is commensurate with the fact that even though we're saying that there are a finite number of ways that my particles, my electrons, my protons, my quarks, there's a finite number of distinct ways that they can be configured, it's a huge number but in an infinite universe let me just stress in an infinite universe 10 to the 10 to the 29 is really small i mean <laughs> infinity is a hard concept to wrap your mind around yeah, i mean you yeah. take half of infinity you've got infinity you take a third of infinity you take a tenth of infinity you've got infinity still so this number however big it may seem by human standards it's just a little tiny blip in this infinite cosmos well, there was one other assumption that we made, and I just maybe I should call attention to it. You said that all of the particles that make her up and all of the forces that join those particles are a finite group. Um, now, how do you know that? All you know is what you can see here, where we are. Why wouldn't, you know, wh who says? Well... Again, there are underlying assumptions that the laws of physics that we know about here are the laws of physics that govern the universe everywhere. That's, again, a, a rather simple assumption that we don't know to be true. Certainly our observations of the universe suggest that the parts that we can see visually are governed by the same laws of physics that govern the phenomenon that we can see the world around us. That doesn't prove that if you go sufficiently far out, the laws might change. Simplest assumption is that they don't change, and that's certainly what I am assuming. In some of those universes, there'll be one lonely human, the only person that's formed out of the particles in that universe, and in a very tiny fraction, there'll be universes that look like ours. Well, since you've slipped in this plural for universe, now universe says, let, let's, because uh, I don't know that I should just let you do that. Let's just do that. When you use the word, when I use the word universe, I use it in the common sense that it includes everything that we know of or that we can imagine. That seems to not be even remotely what you're doing. Uh, well, we found that that notion of universe 
however all-encompassing it sounds, is a little too coarse to accurately describe modern thinking about how the physical universe actually works. And we find it more useful to have words that delineate the universe with finer characteristics than lumping it all together into everything that you can imagine, everything that's out there. So, for instance, we imagine the observable universe. That's the part of the universe that you can, in principle, see with a sufficiently powerful telescope, with a sufficiently powerful receiver, you'd be able to exchange signals with those parts of the universe. We believe that there are parts of the universe that are just beyond our ability to see because there's not enough time since the beginning for light or any other influence to travel from that distant location to us. So that's a part of the universe that's kind of separate from us. It's not within the observable universe. So some people like to think of our observable universe as one contained universe and those other regions as, in some sense, other universes. They're not that distinct. In principle, you can get to them if you travel sufficiently far. They're just regions that are beyond our ability to exchange influence with today. How much space can we see? What's the observable? Uh, roughly 42 billion light years in any given direction. So, if is there a place out there where conceivably what is predictable over here changes out there? Is there is there any neighborhoodness where the laws actually might? Yeah, be different? yes, a- absolutely. So, in fact, when we study modern cosmology with greater intensity, we find that it's probably likely that if you examine the universe from, say, a God's eye view. So using that capital U universe that you started with, if you can sort of see, in some sense, the whole thing, not just what we individual humans have access to, if you can see the whole thing, then you'd probably find, according to a a theory called inflationary cosmology that we can discuss if you'd like, Mm -hmm. but according to this theory, the likely complexion of the universe is that there are a variety of bubbles, bubble universes, ours is just one, of this vast cosmic bubble bath of universes, and in the different bubbles, the laws of physics can appear to be somewhat different from the laws that we are familiar with. When you say uh, they, they can be different, so are you talking about all hydrogen but no oxygen, or are you talking about, oh, actually, we don't have gravity here. We don't, uh, we don't do gravity. Uh, or, you know, we don't it, actually have a weak force. Uh, it, it's, it, it's more the former, but actually the distinction between those two examples is not as clear-cut as you would envision. So, for instance, if you talk about not having the, the nuclear forces, which is what you were alluding to, it's possible that the nuclear forces can be in our universe as we measure them and in that other bubble universe, but in the other bubble universe, they might be so weak compared to their strength in our universe that they don't have much of an impact. The impact might be infinitesimally small compared to the impact in our world, So for all intents and purposes, there might not be a nuclear force in that universe compared to the nuclear force in ours. Well, now this is getting a little complicated. So (laughs) we're here with a set of rules and a set of operating systems that we have somehow magnificently begun to figure out. And then you say there might be a neighbor where all of the principles that 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 have organized life and existence here may not be operating quite the same way. But I guess I kind of thought that we here eventually attach to them there. 
So these bubbles you talk about, are so these are a different kind of bubble. Bubbles where we don't attach. It's as if the universe is a big block of Swiss cheese. And I'll just stop right there. Thank you. No, uh, <laughs> it, it's like a big block of Swiss cheese where the holes are the universes that we're talking about. So everything that we know about is one hole in the cosmic Swiss cheese, but there are many other holes in the cosmic Swiss cheese. And the point is, when we study this picture that emerges from studying the cosmological data, not from an overworked imagination, we find that the meaty part of the cheese, it's sort of a bad vegan man metaphor there, I guess, <laughs> but you know, the, um, the, white, the white part of the cheese expands so quickly that the bubbles, the holes in the cheese are pushed apart at an enormously fast rate, faster than the speed of light, and that's what prevents one from even in principle going from one hole, one bubble, our universe, to another hole, another bubble. So our universe and the other universe is are all embedded in this environment, this cosmic Swiss cheese, but we can't traverse the cheesy part because it's growing so enormously quickly. But Oh, dear. See, now, <clears throat> let's go with your metaphor here. So we have this big Swiss cheese of a, of a mega something of the, the, the place. Multiverse is, is actually multiverse. the word that's often, yes. All right. So now, I, we're inside. We're in a space. So <clears throat> this is your cheese hole now. Yes. Okay. So I'm living in there, you know, and my universe is getting bigger and bigger. So this Swiss cheese has a... A, a hole that is growing. The hole is growing the larger. The hole is growing. And you're saying that the cheese... But the right part of the cheese is also growing, and it's growing faster than the rate of which that hole is growing. So wow. there's bigger holes, but more cheese. So if you're in your... <laughs> this particular evening is brought to you by the American Dairy Association. Make us a and we'll be doing it in Wisconsin next week. So... The reason I can't talk to you, if you're in your hole and I'm in mine, is I'm here growing, you're over there growing, but the space between us, we would be flying to either side of this stage. Yes. Faster than the speed of light, you Yes, say. faster than the speed of light. Sometimes people say, well, how's that possible? Nothing goes faster than the speed of light. And the thing to remember is that when Einstein established that nothing goes faster than the speed of light, what he really established is that nothing can traverse space at a speed greater than the speed of light. But his equations full well allow space itself to grow at any speed. Bigger than the speed of light is perfectly fine. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to have to keep summing up because otherwise I'm going to get completely lost. So, uh, the universe then is a series of expanding empty spaces inside a web of some kind. Kind of, we'll call it the big cheese. And uh, the, the webs are growing. Wh what I don't still understand is... Where did these holes come from? In Swiss cheese, I have no idea where those holes come from either. <laughs> I consider this the, the dual hole problem myself. What, could you address, please, the spatial holes, and we'll leave the dairy holes for another occasion. Yeah, so, so in, in this version of cosmology, again, it's called inflationary cosmology, what happens is, in the beginning, whatever that means, space is filled with something that we call a field. 
an inflaton field is the name of it. And a field is very much like an electromagnetic field. I think we're all pretty much familiar with that idea that there are electromagnetic waves going through this room. That's how you can use your cell phone to talk to somebody far away. The electromagnetic waves are suffusing space. Those electromagnetic waves are fields, electromagnetic fields. This inflationary theory invokes a new field, not the electromagnetic field, that fills all of space. And it has the amazing property that by virtue of filling space, it causes space to be filled with repulsive gravity. That's what this field does. Repulsive gravity pushes everything apart. So this is gravity, normal gravity brings things together. This is the ugly twin. That's right. Get out of my way. That's right. And Einstein himself is the one who found this. This is an old idea, repulsive gravity. It goes back to 1917. Even though it's not widely appreciated, that gravity can be repulsive. And in this environment of this field filling space, gravity is repulsive, drives space apart. As space is driven apart, it turns out that there are regions where this field drops to zero value. It quantum fluctuates to zero value, and those are the holes. So we, our universe, is simply a fluctuation in this field where it had a high value and it dropped to a low value, thankfully then giving rise to the universe that we are familiar with. So the cheesy parts of the Swiss cheese are the places where the field has a finite value, and the holes in the Swiss cheese are where the field has dropped to zero value. Okay. So this leaves me then, uh, infinity I get. On the universe side, we, what we end up with then is very distinctly different neighborhoods. Each of these bubbles can have its own character. So some of them, you could have uh, atoms that come together happily and form chains and then form us and then yes. even give rise to intelligent things. And other things you just get like eh, sand or, I don't know, really boring for yes. us. Yep, exactly. So then the, the universe is got, is it, is, is this an infinite universe? This multiverse? Well, that, that, that's a, that's a good question. Stick around because Krulwich and Brian Green are going deeper into the multiverse after this quick break. Radiolab, Lulu, we are jumping right back in where we left off with theoretical particle physicist Brian Green and curious retired radio host Robert Krulwich. Is, is this an infinite universe, this multiverse? Well, that, that, that's, a, that's a good question. So there are a number of kinds of infinities that now come into the story. Number one, you can ask, how many different bubbles are there? How many different holes in the cosmic Swiss cheese are there? And indeed, this is a process that we believe to be eternal. And therefore, there would actually be an infinite number of these little bubbles, with our bubble being just one. And now you might say, but wait a second, you started off this conversation talking about space that we have access to going on infinitely far. If our universe is a bubble, no matter how big, it doesn't go on infinitely far. It has some size to it. To someone on the outside, it looks like this bubble has finite size. To anybody on the inside, it looks like it has infinite size. So the conversation that we had... 15 minutes ago about a universe that goes on forever applies here even to each of those individual bubbles. So in each oh. bubble, space goes on infinity. So there are an infinite number of copies of us having this conversation inside our inside a single one of these bubbles. And then you've got infinite number of bubbles where anything else can be going on. There's a danger that people say, oh, my God, this is so far out and nuts. This is it's pretty far th- out. And this pretty is nuts. this is a very minimal, a very minimal approach to describing observations that we have. Observations of the early universe by looking deeply into space 
can only be understood, largely speaking, in the context of the frameworks that we're discussing here. You're saying to me that all these nutty ideas come from very, very serious premises. Yes, they don't come from people saying, let's think up a nutty idea and examine its consequences. They come from people saying, let's do measurements of the universe and try to come up with theories that explain those measurements. I'm not even going to ask you what measurements those were. No, literally, the, the, that's not hard to describe. It's literally measurements of the temperature of radiation that we believe is left over from the early stages of our bubble universe. You measure the temperature over there, the temperature over there, and so forth, and you get certain numbers, and you try to explain them with theoretical equations, and the framework that is able to best describe them winds up entailing all of the additional structure that we're talking about. It comes along with the theory. It's not something that you put in from the outside. Well, I'm going to get as weird as I know how to get here, based on what you told me before. I, in addition, imagine now a universe in which there's a bubble in which we have carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and all the forces that we're familiar with, and we have planets and mass and clouds of gas and you and me over and over and over again, that universe. And then we have another universe not too far over on that direction which, in which very little happens, another one in which we get halfway there, another one in which uh, very odd things happen. What about this? One of these bubble universes produces super-intelligent computer geeks, intelligent beings. And what they do is they do the matrix. They come up with a supercomputer fabulous supercomputer that creates a universe so spectacularly realistic that the critters in that phony, fake universe think they're alive. If you can make, give me our universe and weird universes and weirder universes, can you eliminate the possibility of totally fake universes? Uh, not only can't you eliminate it, it's actually quite likely. I mean, you see, in our universe, just using that as a benchmark, that we're getting closer and closer to being able to do exactly what you're talking about. Imagine technology 1,000 or 10,000 years or 100,000 years down the road. One presumes that if progress continues apace, that we will be able to create the kind of simulations, computer simulations, that to those bits that are being manipulated in that simulation appears to have a reality in much the same way that you're familiar from the matrix. Now, the place where the ideas that we're talking about come in is the following. If you ask yourself the following question, is it more likely that if I'm a being that sees a reality, is it more likely that that's a real reality that came from the universe creating it as, say, one of these bubbles or is it more likely that I'm in a simulation? And all we're talking about here leads to a rather interesting conclusion. Because for the universe to create a reality that we're familiar with is a relatively unlikely course of events. Because the universe is creating all these bubbles, the particles are coming together in one way or another, randomly joining together according to the laws of physics, and only in some real tiny fraction Will the configurations give rise to human beings, say, that see a world akin to the one that we see? That's rare. In one of those bubbles, though, if you do have these super intelligent beings, maybe they're not even super intelligent, just super expert at dealing with the technology of their time, if they can create simulated universes, it's much more direct route 
to a reality that we would consider akin to what we experience. It's not random. It's individuals actually creating the simulation. In fact, they can create simulation after simulation after simulation after simulation. Oh, no. So the chances of us being in a naturally occurring real world might be smaller than the chances that we belong to the fifth grade project of a geeky kid in the planet Xantar. I don't know how you live with this stuff. <laughs> and we've only just sat down, and you've already told me that we are doppelgangered up the gazoo. We therefore seem to have no real identity. Um, free will is an open question. And we're probably a fake. <laughs> Assuming that you believe these things to be true, doesn't it get you down? No, I think it's incredibly exciting. I mean, to me, the most wondrous thing about science and, and physics in particular is the fact that through the power of thought and calculation and observation, you can be led to conclusions vastly at odds with what you would think based upon experience. I don't think there's anything more wondrous in that moment when you think the world is one way and your equations, your math, your ideas, your theories begin to convince you that it is another way. And we've seen this played out in the history of science over and over again. It's not something that gets you down, it's something that pumps you up. And if we, and if we are now perhaps learning that the very nature of reality at least needs to be questioned, it doesn't in any way establish that we are in some simulation because it's more likely perhaps that we are in one, we could still be in a real universe, but to me it's wonderful to get your sense of reality kicked, to get a kick in the head, and to at least be able to contemplate the real possibility that the laws of physics are suggesting that reality is not what you think it is. However diminishing that may make some people feel, I think we need to perhaps face up to the real possibility that the notion of having free will is an illusion. It's a useful illusion, it makes life interesting, and it's one that you need to put to the side because you need to live as though you do have free will, but all there is is physics. <laughs> um, don't you, there are a lot of people, uh, Paul Steinhardt, David Gross, uh, Martin Gardner, who have some real problems with this multiverse concept, and I'm just going to run a few of them by you. One of them is <clears throat> to conjure up a universe in which everything that could happen is happening, doesn't that break one of the basic rules of science that, you know, the keep it simple rule, Occam's razor? I mean, if you can, or I'll just quote Martin Gardner. Surely the conjecture that there's just one universe and its creator is infinitely simpler and easier to believe than there are countless billions upon billions of worlds. It does sound simpler in some ways, and I have to say, I'm going to give you two answers to this issue. If it turns out that our future understanding eliminates this idea of parallel universes, multiverse theory, and winds up showing, ah, the way to think about it is this, there's one universe, we can calculate everything, it's uniquely determined by the laws of physics. I think I'd be happier with that outcome. So don't get the misunderstanding that I have some emotional connection to this idea. It's where we're naturally led by a variety of interesting ideas and therefore needs to be taken seriously. But in terms of it being simpler, 
to have one universe versus many. It really depends on how you define simpler. All right, so, so we, we're left with a bunch of choices. We are uh, infinitely duplicatable. We live in cheese in expanding holes. <laughs> we, we might be a reflection of a computer. We might be a pale reflection of mathematics. We might be actually made of real stuff in the here and now or not. That was Professor Brian Green in conversation with Robert Krolwich. Check out radiolab.org for more. And thanks, as always, no matter what the physicists say, I don't believe you are infinitely duplicatable, listener. You are one of a kind, and our gratitude is vast for your listening.